Welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we, with you, are just trying to make the world 10% nicer by any means necessary. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and today's guest is none other than my friend, Ed Gamester. Ed is a multidiscipline performer. He specializes in action, comedy, and, and world strongman competitions. Yeah. He lives in his mobile guild hall on the roads of the United Kingdom, touring the country, making TV and films, playing live music, filming documentary content, wrestling, competing in feats of strength, and spreading the word of the guild. Doesn't that sound like a great life? Van life. Maximized. Anyway, he's also a hell of a writer, author of of something under 55 books, and a vocal proponent of the Vikings had horns theory. In this episode, which is certainly under 10 hours in length, we discuss uh, natural versus chemical musculature, the inanity of the 80-20 rule, the London school of lucha libre, uh, why efficiency and productivity are anti-human, 13 years of gay bum, and that time that Ed swam across an entire ocean to discover the origin of rum. And of course, the Guild. This is the 70th episode of Nice Work, which means I'm going to flip to page 70 of the book I'm currently reading and read something out of it, something that will inspire or delight or confuse you. Uh, I couldn't flip because this book doesn't have page numbers. Uh, I had to count them. Uh, anyway, let's just pretend. Here's the sound. There we go. <clears throat> it was all squeaky and awful. Oh, Chris, got him. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm so sorry. Stop it. I was asleep. I was only dreaming. Yeah, dreaming of Chris. Dreaming of the girl you love. Oh, I can't believe this. You're being so weird. I'm weird? Yeah. Well, you know what? I think you'd better go. Right now? I thought you said your fo- your folks weren't getting back until Sunday. That doesn't matter. I want you to go. It's, it's three in the morning. Where am I going to sleep? I don't care. Just take your things and go. Yeah. I got a career in voice acting. Anyway, that's from a graphic novel called Black Hole by Charles Burns. It's largely regarded as one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Can't you tell? Yeah, not dialogue. Should have hooked you. All right. Let's do this. Turn off everything else. Tune out the rest of the world and drop in to nice work with super nice Ed Gamester, one of my very favorite humans alive. Ed, Ed Gamester, you're on Nice Work. I'm glad you're with us. How are you? I couldn't be better, frankly. To be on this podcast is, I mean, it's an honor that I have not yet worked out if I deserve. <laughs> but here peak, I am. <laughs> peak living. Hey, yeah. where, where are you? Maxing Tell us up. where you are. I am currently in my parents' uh, dining room because I live in a van these days and the internet connection is dodgy and sketchy and so I thought I'd do the honorable thing of being a, a not a terrible guest. And what city, are, what city, what country? Oh, I am uh, in a little village called Bourne End, which is uh, about half an hour west of London, in England, London, England. 
London, England. London, England in the UK, because I'm sure there's a London, England in another country. There's probably well. quite a few. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when did you strike out into the van life, which is so popular in the States right now, by the way? Is the van life thing big over there in London, England, United Kingdom? It is not in London, England. You can't take vans into <laughs> London, England. You get fined heavily for going anywhere near London, England in a van. Uh, you know, it's, it's booming over here as well, you know, mainly because we're a whole generation that oh, will never afford houses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we just accepted that one, I find, but <laughs> who cares? Um, I have been vanning. Well, basically, I, a slightly hyperactive person. So when lockdown came, I realized I had to do something or I would implode and die. So I bought a huge uh, house moving van. Well, as huge as I can drive on my tiny man's license, uh, and then just converted it into into a house. Uh, but this is—I've never done anything. I've don't, I didn't even own a screwdriver to start this project, so I was—it was bare bones, man. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very new to it, folks. When you listen to the rest of this podcast and you think of all the things that Ed does, and you try to envision them smashed down into a van of any size, <laughs> it'll kind of blow your mind. Uh, speaking of which, I want to let listeners know that we're going to kind of save the best for last. So you have two choices. You can either listen to this wonderful podcast or you can just skip ahead, right? But if you skip ahead, we'll kind of know. Like Santa Claus knows if, if, you're, mm -hmm. if you're naughty or nice. So just, I'll wake up in the middle of the night just like, <gasps> somebody skipped yeah, yeah, yeah. ahead. No, we want to get to Ed's guild. And the guild is, an, is, is quite, quite an interesting approach to community building and, I don't know, what would you say, just personal development? And oh, I don't think I do it the justice of fun. calling it development. <laughs> I, was trying to tease, I was trying to tease something more super nice, Ed, all right? No, it's super nice. It's, 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 it's a, yeah, it's, it's a commitment to being a, a being of interest and, and excitement in a world that can often, you know, kind of smash you down into sort of a paste of a human being. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so like the eggs and the milk at the back of the store, that's where the guild is going to sit in this podcast. As we walk through the store, I'm, I'm torturing this, we're going to go through <laughs> music and wrestling <laughs> and bodybuilding and documentaries and TV and film. And there's so much stuff here with you, Ed. Let's just go with, with you, the physicality with you. Oh, okay. The strapping lad. You compete in strongman competitions. I do. Natural, natural strongman yes. competitions. What's the difference there? Is it like you use organic deodorant? The other guys are using <laughs> aluminum sticks? Yeah. What's the deal? What's a yeah, natural strongman? It smells worse, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. It's, it's very straightforward. Um, natural strongman doesn't in – there's a long list of prohibited substances that they, they declare will enhance your performance or recovery. So they've listed a bunch of stuff you basically can't – can't take if you want to compete in certain competitions uh, and so yeah that means that there are you know different performance enhancing drugs that um that lot i'd say the majority of, of of the strength community take just as standard uh it basically in order to maintain their well-being whilst also pushing their bodies to the physical limits of, of what's humanly possible um but within natural strongman you don't you don't take any of that stuff um, so it sort of levels the playing field and uh, stops people injuring themselves in the pursuit of trying to do something that's sort of physically impossible within their own natural limitations. Mm. Um, so in short, we don't take drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Boring. Yeah, no it is a bit. <laughs> it is a bit. <laughs> Certainly the feats of strength are much smaller. Well, I say much smaller. You know, when you come down to it, as a natural strongman, you are capable of, of – 
of getting yourself to like 99.8% of what you're physically capable of doing anyway. And then after many years of toil, you get to a point where you're like, all right, I, I physically can't train and uh, enough to to get any stronger without, you know, having to supplement my training with, you know, non-naturally occurring um Hormones, or oh, hormones are naturally occurring, but not in that quantity. Is there a rivalry at all between the the natural and the non-natural strongmen? Do you guys ever like go against each other, ten on one side, have a dance off? Or... Ten on one side and one on the other, who just crushes yeah. us all? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm wondering. Do you, do you, are the do the two worlds overlap at all? Or when you get caught cheating, do you become a natural? I mean, do you, you know, become, well, the thing is, natural strongman no, no, is natural. a much much uh, smaller sport uh, okay. because of its restrictions so i mean there really isn't a rivalry to be had because everything that everyone sees on tv everything that's famous in terms of strongman is all for lack of a better expression non-natural strongman they're all enhanced athletes they're all in a cocktail of different um drugs and enhancements to to allow them to do the superhuman things that they do so i mean there really is that that's where all the money is that's where all the fame is so they do not give a shit about us uh okay okay <laughs> in the slightest. what about Speaking of cocktails, what about rum? Would that be something hmm. that's prohibited from the natural strongmen? You know what? I believe alcohol and rum is allowed, which, I mean, oh. I haven't double-checked, so maybe I've been cheating all these years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's weird things you wouldn't think are banned. I'm pretty sure, like, cannabis is one of the restricted substances, which is <laughs> I don't know how that would enhance anyone's performance. Uh, <laughs> but it's a weird sport, very European. They love rules over there. So I was looking at your latest Instagram post, which reads, Hex Dead Heft PB, mm. personal best day in the guild. Mm. 300 kg for me for the first mm. time ever. Um, I, I don't know, kg, is that what, I thought you guys used stones. Is that, is that the, <laughs> no. Kilograms, what? Kilograms, what? Figure it out. Is it stones or pounds or kilograms? No, but in the picture, it looks like like you're lifting like a seriously modified baby stroller with giant tires, but one that weighs nearly 700 pounds. Yeah, That is essentially exactly correct. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, yeah. want to put a baby anywhere near it, uh, yeah. let alone stroll a baby in it. Um, yeah, yeah, so... Uh, I mean, without being incredibly tedious, a hex bar is just a different type of lifting equipment. Uh, it's just a different way of, of performing a conventional deadlift. And so myself and a very good friend of mine and my, my girlfriend, we all decided to set out and lift our heaviest ever um, hex bar deadlifts all on the same day, fueled primarily by beer. Um, so again, if that is a restricted substance, I've already been banned. And Do I've we have a beer it. sponsor that we should shout out real quick? What's in your hand? Uh, oh, I'm drinking Brewdog today. Um, I'm a shareholder in BrewDog, so if everyone goes and buys them, I become incrementally very slightly richer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Scottish independent brewery. They used to be incredibly cool like 10 years ago when I when I bought shares, and I think, I feel like they've maybe sold out. Although um, a quick story that I li I'd like about them, they, they have a beer called Elvis Juice, and I believe like the Elvis Presley estate attempted to sue them for, for using the name Elvis because they said that they were profiteering off of his name. And so in response, the owners of BrewDog both changed their name to Elvis and countersued the Elvis family. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that is at least how the rumor goes. Um, yes. So this is their flagship IPA that I'm that I'm quaffing quite fantastic. About. So you're pissed on Elvis juice and you set personal bests of with course. the hex. What is it called? What's it called? It, hex, it's dead called hex bar or, or a trap bar. Some people know it as a trap bar because it works your trapezius muscles. <laughs> so 300 kilograms is, is hmm. a bit. It's a lot. 
Well, I mean, it depends how big you are, doesn't it? I'm quite small. People think that I'm large because they don't see me in real life, but I, I waver underneath 80 kilos or what is that in you? About 180 pounds in American mm-hmm. money. Um, so, you know, for me, 300 kilos uh, or 700 pounds is quite a lot of weight. Um, there are very large people out there who would, would lift that very easily. But what people don't seem to realize is that strongman is, in fact, a weight categorized sport, you see. So not everyone is 160 pounds of fat and muscle. Some of us are sort of smaller and we compete in in weight weight classes you know under 80 kilos under 100 kilos under 120 kilos and then you know everyone sees basically everyone only really watches the large guys but um weight category strongman is, is growing so now at like world strongest man and stuff like that you can watch all the different weight categories and dude the small guys are, are, are savage um like these guys are like picking things up the way four times what they weigh uh, i mean for context uh, the big guys are, are are lifting things that weigh the same as them or twice as much whereas you get small guys who are lifting relatively twice the weight so it's 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 staggering to watch like tiny beetle people (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry if i hesitated there i just i'm a little bit hung up on the fact that you keep referring to this this kilogram thing i thought that that we were together on this the united states and and england we use pounds not this no (laughs) we left you behind see fourth of july you guys love to shout and scream about leaving us behind and then we move on with the world and use uh you know (laughs) A metric system of measurement, like everyone does. You move uh, on. We move well, on. Aren't you? Forward. Don't you still have? Don't you still have a monarchy? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> in <Come> name, <laughs> they're dying off pretty quick. One of them died recently, and most of us were shocked. We didn't think it was possible. It's been such a long time. I mean, the last one had to be murdered, I think. So, well, lizard people, you know, they're they're forever. Yeah, no, we use kilos, and it's it's like the international lifting standard as well. Um, generally speaking, I'll get in trouble for saying that, but even in the states, a lot of you guys will will use kilos when you're putting up references and stuff because it's it's internationally. At the, up at the <laughs> guild, we everything is weighed in uh, units of. Um, of liquid, so different sizes of wine bottles. Like you refer to how many like firkins you've lifted, or how many kegs, uh, <laughs> how many magnums. It's like I have did eighteen magnums above my head today. No one knows what it means, and that's kind of the point, which I guess is alluding to the general point of the guild, and you know, as we'll come to eventually, which is do the thing, and it doesn't matter if no one understands if it's cool. Do you use like in the wine world? What is it, Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, uh, a vast Nebuchadnezzar. I a Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> above my head. <laughs> exactly. And you, no one knows if that's good or not. No. <laughs> Least of all me. People it's come and they're like, whoa, 15 Nebuchadnezzars today. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. I don't care. If they're, if they're proud of themselves, I'm proud of them. And <laughs> if you drink a Nebuchadnezzar of wine, it's not a good thing. I don't we'll tell you that. I think you die yeah. long before. Yeah. Long before. <laughs> so I... On your, your Instagram post, next to you lifting the 700-pound baby stroller, yes. there's another winner of a post here. It's a photo of, uh, of an artfully designed, I think, your girlfriend, Rune, and mm-hmm. it's titled The Power of Antithesis. Oh. Um, I, I want to read it. It's pretty great. You say, what makes us wise is knowing our ignorance. What makes us strong is overcoming our weakness. What keeps us going is remembering why we started in the first place. The key is being able to spot and accept these things in ourselves. I think of this principle of knowing the truth about yourself by spotting the lies as being a mirror. 
Taking a look at yourself and being honest about what you see. Is the person looking back at you the strongest, hardest working version of yourself? Or are they just coasting along, knowing their potential, but never living up to it for fear of failure and instead getting by on the minimum and hoping people don't realize? Is the person in the mirror you? Or are they a stranger dressed and acting like you, but half living by somebody else's values? Nobody else might notice the falsehood, but you will. You are the person you can't deceive. And when you look in the mirror, you're the only person looking back. Honesty is everything. Damn, son. That's asking for some real (laughs) self-assessment. I want to know, love it, by the way, but I want to know, where were these words born from? How often has that mirror pushed you toward more accountability in your life? Um, constantly the the words come from, I mean, I have a small book called the Guildsman's Handbook, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. And this is a reference to one of the nine chapters of the guild, uh, known as what I call the stranger, which was basically my way of ripping off game of Thrones to be, you know, current. (laughs) That's marketing. Of course you just jump on other people's brands. I know that much. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, well, I mean, you, you, you summarized it perfectly by, by reading out my own summary of it. Um, <laughs> the key of the idea of honesty being everything is the idea that really it's very easy, especially in this day and age to get one over on everybody. Uh, like social media is a perfect example and make it look like you are a certain way or achieving a certain thing. But the thing is, you know, deep down whether or not you are. And if you can't sort of look yourself in the eye or, you know, when you look in the mirror or metaphorically or otherwise, then is there really any point if you can convince everybody that you're doing well, whereas in fact, when you look at yourself, you know, you're not that idea of being able to look yourself in the eye, essentially, and honestly say whether or not you are living true to your own values is essentially um, the linchpin upon which the entire guild stands. Um, as the opening of that that particular post goes on about this idea of antithesis and which I like as a metaphor for a mirror, you know, something being reflected back at you is that very often the things that make us strongest are those things that make us weak. And it sort of sounds poetic nonsense, but I I kind of have subscribed to it for my whole life that the strongest people I've ever known have been those who are most aware of the things that make them vulnerable uh, or to other people. And, therein lies their their strength um i I spent a lot of time as a kid i was a a freestyle wrestler and a professional wrestler and by a long standard the better somebody is at beating other people up the nicer they were um because they they didn't feel intimidated by other people so they never felt the need to prove themselves and then bizarrely the strongest people i knew were the gentlest um and again like a kind of a nod to this socratic or platonic idea of wisdom being that um as I'm sure you you probably find this a lot, Todd, the people who seem to shout and scream the loudest are often the people that know the least about something because they don't know enough to know how little they understand about it. And so often the the wisest people you come across are the quietest or the most humble because they're wise enough to understand how little they know on any given subject matter. Uh, The experts that I know in certain fields are often the ones that that create the least content about it because there's, there's not that much they can say for sure 
um, about whatever the subject matter is. So within history, uh, it's very common these days, for example, for people to get on their high horse about the portrayal of, of Vikings having horns on their helmets. That annoys everybody because they people have become convinced that Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets and this is just some something invented for opera, whereas most of the expert historians I know on the matter will offer an opinion neither one way nor the other because they're quite aware that there's evidence on both cases. But yet, you know, you look out there and the people who are shouting and screaming and talking about how much they know on the subject are doing so because they haven't actually studied it enough to know that they don't really understand anything about it. So, I mean, that's essentially the idea that I'm driving at. Um, it's the, the idea of every time you think you're certain, maybe the feeling of certainty is something that implies maybe you shouldn't be certain. If you think you know something, the chances are that means you don't quite know why you don't know it yet. If you think you're strong, that's possibly because you haven't spotted a chink in your own armor. And if you're aware of how vulnerable you are, bizarrely, that's kind of what's going to make you stronger because you'll be, um, you'll be aware of your own weaknesses and, and, and therefore on guard for them. So, mm. um, yeah, I call it a mirror and you're, you're, you're totally correct that what, what you saw on my post was a painting done by my girlfriend, uh, of a rune, a bind rune that I had created, which was a, a combination of different, um, runes from an alphabet called the elder Futhark, which is the, the eldest of the, uh, of a particular type of alphabet over here in Europe. <laughs> Um, which some people think has magical connotations, and so you can combine them. Uh, but that is, of course, up for debate, like everything. Wow, a lot to unpack there. Uh, what really yeah. jumped out to me there was, was as someone of, uh, of uh, Norwegian heritage, hmm. that, that maybe there, there weren't horns on the, on the, on the helmets. That, that, no, that can't be. That, that's, I'd have to rewrite my own sort of mythology no, of course Vikings had horns on their helmets. What do we, I mean, come on. And if they didn't, what are horns for? Yeah. Yeah, you, there's lots of horns laying around. You're going to pick them up and do something with them. Yeah. You know? And when yeah. you're limited to pretty much helmets, you're going to put them on your helmet. Yeah, of course. All right. If, if, you're, if you're out there listening and you're in the Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets camp, I want to hear from you. I want to have a conversation. We don't have to become enemies around it. We don't have to wrestle. Oh, but we do intellectually. We're going to – These people are – you're already <laughs> the enemy of these people. They are fanatical, honestly. It's something I'm, I've become fascinated with in recent times. Oh, really? I didn't realize really? people uh, – fanatical. People oh, use wow. the word triggered. If you put a, a a picture up of a Viking with ho helmet with horns on it, people will be like, "Nothing triggers me more than this." Oh, I've never heard of this. This is supposed it's, to be a European thing. Yeah, I, of course it is. Okay. Well, for our European about. Super Nice Club members, I, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your argument against the horns. Yeah, just uh, love to hear it. Also, though, the work of this mirror of uh, of looking at and being able for us to assess our conditioning, right? Our societal conditioning, the conditioning from just being kids, having parents, growing up mm -hmm. in a family, uh, in a household, in a small town, in a big city, wherever. These things that are layered upon us. And over the years, one day, sometimes you, you do, you look or you're forced to look into a mirror. And then it's a process of, of sort of unfurling or unpeeling. Where am I? Who mm -hmm. am I? It's, it's, uh, it's work. 
you know, it's work. And, and a lot of things that you said struck home for me. I have been that guy. I've been that guy who's like, blah, 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 loud and, and, and just crashing and smashing because I don't know what the hell I'm really talking about, right? Mm, but I have yeah. a false confidence because I have intellectual capabilities in other areas, mm-hmm. right? Then I don't want to be seen as ignorant in the current subject because that's an ego thing and that's mm-hmm. a... Um, just, you know, one of my challenges. And so, yeah, you do learn, hopefully, over time uh, and through pain of, of relationships uh, battered and bruised, you know, of all sorts, that it's really amazing and liberating to know that you don't know anything, right? And you never will. <laughs> you never will. And it's beautiful. It just makes the journey so much more liberating. doesn't mean you should just stop trying to learn, but like, man... No human ever born has ever known how the universe was formed as a fact. Mm -hmm. Nobody's gotten to the big answer. Nobody. But, but we get to ask so many questions and you get to this point where the questions become so much more exciting than the answers. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I personally, I think you just hit on the, almost the purpose of, of philosophy entirely, right? The, the questions are more interesting than the answers. You don't have to ask a question to get a, get a factual, correct answer. The process of trying to answer the question normally leads you on a much more interesting journey and um, and will, will open up questions you would never have thought about before, right? So Yeah, I mean, I'm, just, now I have all sorts of questions. Around. I asked you a question and now I have so many questions about now Viking we have horns. no idea exactly. And yeah, I would, we when we're done recording, I'm going to be going down the Google road. Yeah, I apologize, man. Yeah. Honestly, it's a it's yeah. a cesspit. No, it's okay. I'm going to really lean on confirmation bias oh. as, I, as I sort through these uh, responses. As as I do the web searches, I'm only going to click on the links that look like they will lead me towards arguments in favor of horns. Okay. And I'm going to ignore all the links that might lead okay. to studies that say there were no horns. So I will be loaded. I could with, point you in the right direction yeah, if you'd yeah. like. I mean, there, there are tapestries and grave findings with horns. And uh, most people are like, well, you know, most people think that they, they, they were just stuck on there by, I think, Wagner or someone in an opera to make it look scary. And the thing is, they've only found a handful of Viking helmets, only two complete ones, and they don't have horns. And most people are like, it's a bit impractical to have horns, isn't it? And then you're like, yeah, it is a bit, but also, you know, they're cool. So <laughs> Vikings did stuff just because it was cool as much as any of us did. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of intellectual wrestling and wrestling over different things, I want to get into this. You have been known at times to wear a Mexican wrestling mask and compete yes. and perform as a... Uh, uh, what do they call it? Luchador. Luchador. Mm-hmm. Luchador. Lucha Libre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in England, I didn't even know they had Mexican food in the UK. I mean, do you, do you even have taco trucks? <laughs> trucks, no, not so much. How, how many luchadors are, are out there in the UK? Is there a Ooh. circuit? Talk to me oh, about this whole I'd say luchador. I'd 30. I mean, wrestling is a, is, is a big deal in the UK. It's a very big deal in the UK. Uh, in general, professional wrestling I'm now talking about, obviously. Um... But Lucha Libre itself is is very isolated or was very isolated to a small part of East London called Bethnal Green, where there was a, a fabulous place called the Resistance Gallery. And in the Resistance Gallery was the London School of Lucha Libre, um, wow. in which 
three or four nights a week, they taught hours and hours of fusion uh, fusion wrestling classes, which combined Mexican wrestling with uh, Japanese wrestling, English traditional wrestling, American style professional wrestling, into this this insane like fusion style of cabaret uh, and over the top characters um, that that would sort of burst to a head at a show called Lucha Britannia at regular intervals, and I was lucky enough to be part of that show. Um, the one and only, as far as I'm aware, uh, a Lucha Libre show in, in possibly even in Europe, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was spectacular. Uh, unfortunately, I think the resistance, the resistance gallery did not survive uh, the the COVID pandemic. It got, I think, trying to keep open a, an art gallery and wrestling school for a year when no one can do galleries or wrestling schools became impossible but uh yeah it, it formed the foundation of my own professional wrestling career so i it, stylistically i'm a lucha a luchador more than i'm any other kind of professional wrestler so like you accurately observed it, it often involves putting on a mask to portray the character that you're trying to uh, wrestle do you as have, do you have a standard character do you have a go-to Oh, yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple. My, my main one that I, I played, the thing is, something people need to bear in mind with Lucha Libre is that often the character is bigger than, than you are. So a character might be created for a show and then you might be the person to play that character by wearing that mask, but that, that mask can be given to other people or handed down. Um, my character on that show was called El Nordico Fuego, um, which is sort of pigeon Spanish, yeah. some kind of like northern fire or, um, you know, the, the Nordic fire. I was part of a tag team. There was an ice guy who was very large and blue, and there was me. I was small and red, and we made like a fire and ice uh, Viking tag team. Uh, and then eventually I just became the Viking guy, um, uh-huh. El Nordico. Without, with, without horns on the mask. The horns uh, got ripped off over time because uh, wrestling, see? as you know, is quite an intense uh, sporting endeavor. So, yeah, I actually became a one-horned Viking for a while, like a unicorn Viking. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I had horns reattached. But, yeah, you, you can only imagine this day and age, man, people would just hate me for having horns on my mask and portraying a Viking. I'd be ostracized from the, the neo-Nordic community. <laughs> so you were a natural wrestler, right? Natural, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. Unfortunately, yeah. it goes hand in hand with what you have to be. Well, if you're natural, one thing you have to be a natural, everything else, really, because you know, you can't be a genetically enhanced wrestler and also a natural strongman, those things aren't gonna, they're not gonna marry up. That's that's true. Uh, I love the idea, I love the so you can't kill the resistance, but maybe the resistance is on hiatus. Does that mean that the character is done? Is do you, let me let me put it this way. In your traveling van of amusements and distractions, yes, is there a luchador mask in the van? Todd, there's not just a luchador mask in the van. I custom made my van to fit an entire wrestling ring under the floor. <laughs> and my no, traveling no. van is now the epicenter of not just a traveling wrestling show, but a traveling wrestling show themed around Vikings and themed around uh, the Viking mythology and the Nordic um, myths and legends. And that is that is my big project for this year is is bringing history and mythology to life in front of people and then brutally murdering it again for everyone's entertainment. That is what the traveling van is doing. So you're, you're traveling around from 
Well, it's it's England, so they're not called cities; they're called villages, right? <laughs> Hamlets, <laughs> Hamlets, yeah. right? Hamlets. So, Hamlet to Hamlet, traveling around. <laughs> this is very, this is very medieval. It's fantastic. It is before medieval. How dare you? Medieval period came three or four hundred years later. Uh, what the medieval period was? What the eighteen hundreds, nineteen fifty, eighteen hundred twenty to nineteen fifty. The medieval right? period in Iceland, it's I think, like only before TV in the 20th century. <laughs> Pre-TV era. Yeah, Iceland just got tourists, like starting in 2005, I think. Very recently. Yeah, they were were technically a medieval society right up until I think the 1970s even, uh, based on various tedious academic measurements. But uh, um, yeah, so, but yeah, oldie worldie, oldie worldie. uh, We're talking like Bronze Age, Iron Age kind of shizzle. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Are you? Do you bring cohorts in from different parts of the country? Like, oh, I'm up here, and I'm going to bring in, you know, El Tigre. <laughs> there, is, there are some luchadors out there by names like yeah. El Tigre. Um, well, this is all very new because obviously, I had a, I had a, a very enjoyable live show themed around the guild that was basically a live stage and combat and stunt show. Like mm-hmm. wrestling meets, you know, sword fighting and stuff. But unfortunately, that also got COVIDed into non-existence. Um, and in the intermittent period where I've been forced to not perform, I've been thinking about what I can do. That isn't just sort of an ego-driven, I want to perform and have fun project, but a project that might actually also um, bring some things to life that other people might enjoy. And be, you know, for like, to use a tedious word, sort of educational you know, uh, everyone's pretty hard for Vikings at the moment. You know, there's TV shows and there's the Thor movies and stuff. So it is kind of nice to represent a slightly more historical contingent of being like, okay, you know, you're interested in Viking culture. Here's here's some actual Viking style music and, and artwork and things like that. So we have traditional folk music that the, the show will be using uh, as its as its audio score, and we have uh, the costumes are traditionally made using traditional techniques of leather working, leather carving. Uh, we use traditional old god masks and things like that. So it's a nice way of of combining a very entertaining way of beating people up with um, a little bit of a taste of of what clothes and music and 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 combat might have looked like back in the day. So when you're out there on the road, do is uh, do you bring gay bum with you at all? <laughs> I might just leave that hanging. <laughs> <laughs> you can't leave a gay bum hanging. No, you can't. We hate that. Yeah, that's um, your band. Your band, Gay Bum. I yes. Was, is it on the road with you? It will be, yeah. So the the show comes in two forms. There's like its its cool kind of historical, fantastical form. And then there's its much more lighthearted uh, live music and people beating each other up for shits and giggles uh, form. And that does in, that definitely involves Gay Bum, which is my band. It's now 13 years old. Um, I treat it like a child because uh, it really is the only way to think of it. Um, and it's much less of a band and more of a what happens when you put me in the same room as a good friend of mine who plays guitar. Um, we sort of just bust out a bunch of songs we wrote far too long ago when we were deeply intoxicated. And for some reason, people enjoy it enough that they ask us to come back. Uh, and so we just don't die. You guys have to go and look at the Gabe on music videos. Just saying, get out there. No? 
Well, right. I don't. Did, did you just whisper like, no, don't? No. I think he just said, no, don't, don't, no, don't, 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 don't send them there. Well, the thing is, man, I don't think that there are any music videos. Like, there are some, there are some live performances. I'll, uh, that's what I mean. There are right, videos right. under the music section on your website. Yeah. Just be very, depending on how sensitive you are, you know, Google with caution. Because it dep- you, you might be, you might love what you find, but also you might be shocked. Um, okay. It's okay to be shocked. Yeah, we're alive. We're alive, sort of an act. We've tried a few times to record our music. It doesn't really work because it's not really music. It's very much an expression of, of sheer joy and silliness. And your um, who's your cohort? In in the bum. Yeah, in the bum. In the bum. There's only one other guy in the bum. His name is uh, Michael Pumo, and actually he he was around this house. He he stayed over last night. We hung out in the van of dreams. Uh, we wrote a couple of new uh, bases for some new songs, which is something that hasn't happened for Jesus like. Five years or something. You know, we like to write a song every decade. That's kind of that's our sort of um, our normal time scale. But we, we think we'll churn some out. What's the gay bum genre? If you had to give it a genre, no, we're not so petty as to be constrained by a genre. Um, if it's satire, a genre. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, yeah, Jack Black, definitely. Well, yeah, people, that's that's the comparison we get the most because yeah. people tend to think that my our music is funny. Uh, uh, I mean, not the music is funny, but the lyrics associated with it, people think, seem to think are entertaining. And so they can compare us to Tenacious D or Flight of the Concords or other sort of comedy bands, um, which is deeply flattering because obviously they are inspirational and and wonderful, but also like... We there's no I think I can't overstate this there is no thought that goes into Gay Bum at all it's we get on stage and we start playing and what happens happens uh, there is really no structure um, we're not a band I think it's offensive to other bands to call us a band we're just two people yeah 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 so you're you're, you're definitely better than Flight of the Concords I got it I hear you um, <laughs> but <laughs> shit <laughs> so you're not just a natural action hero with huge biceps and and a penchant for comedic death metal. You're also um, what else are you? You're a writer, historian, filmmaker. All of which we're going to get to. We're going to get to this. But nope. but first, I just thought this was great. I have this pinned on my wall. Nope. Uh, a quote from one of the great sci-fi masters, um, Robert Heinlein. Here's his quote. A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Ooh. You, my man, are absolutely in Heinlein's camp, and I think, I hope that the world is emerging from a a, a, this, uh, a brief sort of infatuation with hyper-specialization. Mm. And a, as we're learning now that, that generalized artificial intelligence is probably decades away at best, but we have incredible specialized AI that can replace uh, and will replace quickly the hyper-specialists out there. Meaning people like you, even though <gasps> you only just bought a screwdriver, uh, are more valuable than ever. And so... I'm wondering, with all of these passions, with how general you are, but also special, you know, you just do all these different things, all these interests and facets of your career, do you ever find yourself wrestling with which should be your primary focus? 
In short, yes. Uh, primarily because other people have told me that. So yeah, right. Other people have spent. I, well, other people have spent my life telling me <laughs> I should specialize. That I'm spread too thin. That um, I should really just focus on one of the things because I do quite a few things and I did them quite well. But none of them are going to go anywhere. Blah blah blah. And what they seem to misunderstand is that the. In a weird way, I am a specialist in that I'm a specialist in being able to do a bunch of different things to a pretty good way and then cross-weave them together. Um, I mean, that that quote you read was was beautiful and perfect, and I could never say anything like it. But the essentially, the the, the principle on which the the guild was founded um, was was when I was working at a desk and I realized I was being judged as a human being by the same standards by which I was judged as an employee. And that mm. shocked me. And I realized that when I looked around at the self-help books that were being published and the, the blogs that were being written to try and help people who were suffering mentally, they also treated people like human beings. And they were guides to improving your efficiency or your productivity or all these other means of, of um, valuing yourself by a set of, of values and principles that you might apply to an office or to your job instead of to your actual purpose as a human. Um, and so even when people were in the depths of depression or anxiety and trying desperately to dig themselves out, the way that people were trying to help them was by trying to make them better humans, but defining humans as these odd sort of robotic characters that like, here's how to get more out of your day. The, talking to someone with depression about how to get more out of their day is is, is offensive. And, and, and when you've got a book written by somebody who's like, I used to have depression and then I did this and I overcame it and now I'm a very, I'm a best-selling author. It's just like the single least inspiring thing to read when you yourself are in the depths of depression is that not only is this thing that you're suffering with so petty that somebody else conquered it they also then wrote a book about it and became deeply like successful and rich which you as a depressed person assume you will never be seems like the single worst thing to say to people who are suffering and so during this period of my life where I, I too was suffering it occurred to me that the thing that would help me the most was to stop thinking of myself as something a creature that needed to get up and be efficient and productive and who needed to plan his day out in small 10 minute increments to make sure he got the most out of everything and and plot which tea he would drink at which time and and you know these are the most efficient exercises to do in the gym do you want to go to the gym oh tell you what just go for 15 minutes and if you do this series of exercises you'll get the maximum 80 percent for the 20 percent of effort that you put in blah 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 until the joy of just being a human being has been sucked out of every moment of every day and at this point i I founded the guild and I was like, oh, an applause. Thank you. I was like, I, I am not a number. I'm a free man. But it was, it was, it was, it was like, it was that it was, I, I I'm not an employee. I don't want to be efficient. I don't want to be effective. I don't want to be productive. I don't want to, I don't want to invest 20% of effort to get the 80% uh, um, return on my 20% of investment. Like I'm not a business. I'm a human. And I'd rather invest 150% effort and burn out into a husk than spend the rest of my days operating at 20% capacity and laughing at everyone because I've got more money than them or whatever it is, right? So I realized in the depths of my own despair that there were no, there wasn't, well, I couldn't find any literature or humans out there that seemed to understand that. And so I just sort of fled uh, I fled to New Zealand to start with, and I just started writing um, about uh, like essentially a self-help book for people who felt the same way that I did, who were suffering and wanted to be told, actually, you know what? 
life a lot of the time is suffering and instead of running away from it just kind of accept that that's going to happen and that it can help form you into something else and don't feel like you're you're by being depressed you're somehow failing and that you know you need to dig yourself out of it um sort of in a weird way take it into yourself and by giving yourself a bit of a break and not feeling like you're letting yourself and everyone else down then you can kind of dig yourself back out again and maybe you don't need to leave it behind and become a millionaire by selling a book about it to feel better about yourself um so basically, my, this is what I'm saying is, is the idea of non-specializing, I think, didn't just apply to me, to people as humans, as in like, be able to do loads of stuff instead of just being a machine, but also like, stop even thinking of yourself by machine standards. Like, as a human being, your ability to enjoy things and find meaning in things and weave things together in weird and wonderful ways is more or less the only thing you'll ever do better than machines and artificial intelligence and bugs. So you might as well invest your time doing that because I think that's where you end up finding meaning as a human. And from my limited research, it seems like the only thing that gets human beings through each day is a sense of meaning. And a lot of the reason why a lot of people aren't getting through their days at the moment is because they don't have any. So, um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. I didn't realize that was a science fiction quote, but I've got into my science fiction recently. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I'll look more into it. Robert Heinlein. Uh, so, he sort of wrote a book, which was a reaction to people writing books about how to become healthy and happy by becoming efficient. Do you consider it, though, its own type of self-help book, or is it more of an introduction to a different approach? You know what? It's, it's, what it is isn't really up to me to say. I wrote it as, a, as an expression of my own experience and how I saw things. Uh, and it didn't get published or anything. I just paid to have a lot of them printed and then started just manically distributing them and giving them to people I thought might appreciate it. And then the idea of it being a self-help book or a motivational book came afterwards from the people who read it and then started writing to me and saying, hey, I, by the way, I actually read your book that you gave me and um, it really helped me in this way. And I thought it might help a friend. So can I get hold of another copy and give it to them? And then before I knew it, it was kind of spreading around people. And it was it was apparently touching people in ways I hadn't really expected. Uh, people from the armed forces would say that the chapter on, on letting go of having to control everything helped them with their, their PTSD, for example, which didn't occur to me at the time that, that my own ways of, of dealing with wanting to control everything by kind of letting go of it all and, and leaving it up to chance might might help people who are suffering with genuine mental problems caused by uh, the repeated horrors of warfare. I mean, it would be insane for me, an idiot who's never done anything, to, to say that I could write something that might touch somebody like that, but to have written it and then and then have that feedback meant that slowly I came to realize that maybe getting this book into more people's hands was the most valuable thing I could do with my time because if nothing else, it is a very honest expression of my own sort of suffering and my own way of, of overcoming it, which is, and it says very openly in the beginning of the book, this is not a good way to live necessarily. It's just my way to live. And if you happen to feel about the world the way that I feel, then these are a set of guidelines to, to help you make sense of it. Um, not for everyone. Okay, let's let's shift into to pure hype and marketing mode. You ready for it? Ooh, okay. If Bring you're interested in what Ed's been talking about, that's the <laughs> Gilman's Handbook. <laughs> the Gilman's <laughs> Handbook is the definitive introduction. No, uh, what you write about it on your site is it's the definitive introduction to, to guildliness and the nine guiding principles around which my 
not mine, yours, obviously. You. I mean, you guys got that right. Okay. Uh, which adds fellow guilds folk and I, not, uh, and Ed, mm, try to live. It's not the mm-hmm. best way to live, but it's the most guildly, and it might just help you through some of life's crappier bits. I have a copy. I've read a copy. I like the book. In fact, guess what? It is getting the Super Nice Club guarantee. You can buy the book at Ed's website, which will be in the show notes, or it's just Ed Gamester. Type it into Google. You'll find it. If you do not enjoy the book, if you find guildliness to be uh, abhorrent to your own pre-existing principles, we'll buy it back from you. At full price. All right. So it is a guaranteed Super Nice Club book. Guaranteed that you like it. If you don't, we'll buy it from you. And you know what we'll do? We will then gift it to somebody else in the Super Nice Club who may, you know, might might appreciate it a little bit more. I so love that. guaranteed. Guaranteed I on the Guildsman that. Handbook. Oh. Buy the book at edgamester.co.uk. K, 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 K. Oh, probably shouldn't do that. No, wait. I'm going to have to edit that out because of the whole KKK thing. Uh, edgamester.co.uk. Okay. There. That, that's better. You Maybe said I'll K just leave the whole thing. I, did I? I don't know. Well, you said Let's K see. and then you said OK. So if you said nothing, then I said K. Uh, oh. It's, yeah. Jesus. Still we, should, we can't leave that in when we're talking about Nordic things. You understand that? No. Right? I mean, you, uh, well, I didn't understand that until I talked to some American people and I didn't realize how racism and nordic things are, are combined so much over over your it's, day it's it's weird yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's a weird thing um I think that when you're quite abstracted from it like over in europe it, it's not that it's there the culture is there whereas in the states it's not and i think that a lot of people who feel a connection to it maybe they think they're genetically or whatever and they kind of try and reintroduce the culture and they don't understand it and it becomes weird because there's very little of that comparatively over in europe where they are actually nordic um, right. And they're not as racist. So it's, <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, anyway. we, we've got some big issues over here in the States, which is, you know, a, a, uh, no small part of the reason why the Super Nice Club exists. You know, uh, we do need to be nicer. We certainly need to be right, nicer when it comes to race, uh, when it comes to how people are treated, uh, mm-hmm. law enforcement, etc. Super Nice Club is not political, but I think it's kind of obvious that a nicer world is one where people are not judged, harmed, killed because of the amount of uh, melanin that they happen to be born into. The Guildman's, the Guildsman's Handbook, the Guild's Person's Handbook. You could say Guild's Person, Guild's Folk, I like to say, but Ooh, uh, the suffix mun is not a, is not, I don't think etymologically uh, a gendered term either. Mun is just a, means human. I'm going with Guild's Folk because that just sounds like there would be hobbits in there too. Yeah. The, or, I mean, non-humans at all. I, they, orcs, I, I'm sure orcs a dog. and dwarves. Yeah. Oh, of um, course. So, we're, we're going to skip right past The Sexy Adventures of uh, Stan Booth, but there's yep. another book out there called The Sexy Adventures of Stan Booth that does Very not – it, it is not earn <laughs> – it is, does not get the uh, Super Nice Club guarantee. I'm just – just Very don't sensible. conflate the guarantee with all of Ed's output, no. okay? I mean, don't Only, buy The Sexy Adventures of Stan Booth at all is yeah, my recommendation. You do not want The Sexy Adventures of Stan no, Booth. No, you don't. That's – that's, that's, this is see – how, see what we're doing here, folks? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. We're probably going to outsell. That was now going to outsell. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it has <laughs> done consistently. I, yeah, I tried yeah. to put a book out to help people. No, they just want the smut book. <laughs> I had to give the Guildsman's Handbook away for free with every copy of the Sexy Adventures of Stan Booth. 
So you have this you have this affinity for the old ways, the old wisdom, mm-hmm. crafts, arts, and history. Was were you, where did that come from? Was that something instilled in you by by elders, or just um, you know you had a lot of time on your hands and started getting into history books that were sitting around? Yeah, I mean, I think it wasn't necessarily history that st- I think I got into fantasy. Um, I had a, a slightly strange upbringing. Um, I, I was, Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> Who would see that one coming? Um, and I spent quite a lot of my time reading and writing uh, for escapist reasons. Uh, and I developed uh, real affinities for fantasy worlds and Lord of the Rings and so on. And it's it, it doesn't take long before you realize that Lord of the Rings is, is based largely on things like the Nordic mythologies. So then I came across from fantasy, I discovered mythology and from mythology, I discovered history. And um, yeah, I've never been a historian by any means, but I, I certainly found I felt more of a kinship to uh, a culture of the past than I felt to the culture that I was currently living in. Um, you know, not in a, not in to say that one is better or worse. I just, I just mm-hmm. found mm-hmm. that I enjoy uh, ritualistic things. Um, I got into philosophy. Uh, that's what I studied at university. I have a BA in philosophy, weirdly. Um, and I found, you know, over time that there were a bunch of different philosophical um, stances and historical uh, time periods that kind of all seemed to link themselves together in my mind into what seemed to define me. Um and I, I like the idea of large pantheons of gods that all kind of mess with each other and with human beings and represent the different uh, strengths and foibles of human nature. I found that inspiring. And I've always been interested in the fact that a work of fiction can be more motivating than uh, a work of, of nonfiction. You know, um, I, I imagine more people have been inspired by Lord of the Rings than by you know uh, your average biography. So it seems unquestionable that works of fiction carry more motivational power a lot of the time. And so sort of I didn't see why that, that couldn't ring true in reality as well. I mean, I think quite a lot of our reality is sort of a, a – a, a quasi-realist state of affairs where we have to pretend like things are true or false when, in fact, truth or falseness doesn't really even apply to them. And so I figured that would be a good way to live. Why not live as if you are in a myth at all times? Because even if it's not as vertical as real as, as reality, it's probably more exciting and motivating and, and meaningful than reality ever could be. So kind of bringing I, – I decided to, to live the same way um, – as as the people in the weird books and stories I read, because it seemed like a better way to spend my time. Well, and it's there's no way to say that it's not more or less accurate, since not one human has ever known factually uh, whether mm-hmm. or not we are living in a world with a pantheon of twenty gods and goddesses, yep. or whether you know we have a uh, a monotheistic destiny where we're going to go to the pearly gates. You know, yep. um, none of us know, and this is not to to malign any belief system. But since we simply can't know until after we die, and we may not know. I mean, that always seems <laughs> like a no, weird one. No knowing, it? right? Yeah. Like, well, so, when you die, you'll know. It seems, well, that seems like the last time you're going to know if you're dead. <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, what's his crazy face? Uh, the guy who controls the world's uh, economy, um, Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A good personal friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's got that. He's, he, spits out, he spits out the theory of, of uh, you know, where we're living within uh, the Matrix, right? Oh, right. Uh, uh, and that's not really any different. You know, no. he's just choosing to, pos- to believe that maybe we're just basically 
you know, living within a, a video games within video games or realities yeah. within realities that are digitally constructed. It's essentially the same escapist fantasy mm. well, as, yeah. as what you're describing, right? For him, it's the super geeky version yeah. of it. Philosophers for millennia have been postulating the same thing before video games. They were still suggesting the same thing. I don't know, man. My opinion on the matter, I guess, extends to even if that's true, does it ha- does it is there are there any implications? Is there no. anything that you can do differently? No. If the wor- I think the same thing about a few things. Maybe it's controversial, but if the if the worst case is true and the whole world is going to be destroyed in let's say a year, two years, ten years, next week, say that's true and it's unavoidable. Again, does it like if it's if it's unavoidable, does anything change really? Like the 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 experience of phenomenology of being a human being would be the same if you're in a video game inside a video game inside a video game, or if in fact if you are living in reality as it is. Um, so really, to spend too much time wondering or worrying about which one it is and what's about to happen seems like a sort of a waste of the, of the limited time and energy that you have. So it sort of feels like if you can, given that you can't know any of these things, if you take a step back and work out how you would live if any of them were true, uh, and if there's a difference, and then just live that way anyway. Um, the, the, old, the old classic idea of, um, you know, if there is a, you might as well believe in God because if there is one, then you'll be on his team. And if there isn't one, then what have you lost? So, you know, it's kind of the, the idea of making your value system that, that covers your basis. I'm the same way. You know, maybe I'm a video game. Maybe I'm a dog wearing a special hat in a different world. Maybe this is magic. Maybe this is actually how it is. Maybe the world's about to blow up tomorrow. Maybe it's going to go on for a trillion more years. I'm going to do the same thing anyway because I've worked out roughly what my principles are. So, you know what you sound like to me, Gamester? You sound uh, like a possibilian. <laughs> it's another Ooh. term you can look up. Yeah, the possibilian. Oh, okay. it, write that it's down. A, it's an actual, it's a thing. Uh, everybody should look it up. Possibilian. I'm a possibilian. Cool. Uh, we both possibilians. Anything could be the truth, so therefore nothing would be surprising. Maybe may a delightful surprise, uh-huh. right? Uh, hopefully not a horrific surprise. But uh, no, possibilianism is sort of a, a, well, a cheeky philosophy. Um, somebody can call it a belief system. It's, it's not atheism. Um, it's possibilianism. Uh, David, like uh, David Eagleston. David Eagleston? Mm. David Eagleman? David. His name's David. Uh, okay. He's a, wrote a book called Some, which uh, invokes who? Our mutual friend Kara who is no. the one who sent me the book originally. Uh-huh. Some, it's uh, like 20 Tales of the Afterlife. Well, if it Great gets Kara's nod, then book. I will just yeah. nod in advance on the assumption that it's brilliant. And then it, it isn't. Is, it is a brilliant book. Yeah. So is that how we met? Was it, where did we meet? I, I couldn't remember. Yeah, it was Kara. Um, yeah. Yeah, Kara directed a short docuseries uh, about the history and culture of rum. Um, in which I was the mouthpiece um, and sort of, I guess, face of. Um, and then we launched that in a rum bar in LA a couple of years back, and that is where that is where you and I met. We we put a we put a crate or a shipping crate on the floor outside the bar and made it into a makeshift fine dining experience by putting, I think, some Mexican food and some rum on what it was essentially a piece of trash outside the rum bar. This is how we do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. this, yeah. Is, this is the beginning of your uh, 
scrapping things together, right? Mm-hmm. It, that, from there, the, from thought, there, the van. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, just a hip and a hop and a skip and a jump to the van. So I was lucky enough to witness some of the filming uh, of a rum story, uh-huh. which which speaks to your passion, our shared our shared appreciation for for rum. Where did that come from? Where where, where was the idea for the rum story? And uh, it's this great story of. Uh, I mean, it's funny as hell. There's no way to really describe it unless just get on Ed's site and, and watch the trailer, the teaser. Is, is any of the are the, the early episodes? There's a link it's to my there. website to, the, to yeah. all the episodes back to back yeah. up on YouTube. Yeah. A common theme when people try and describe what I do where they're like, oh, you, uh, you can't really describe it. You kind of just have to go and see it, which makes it quite hard to just, you know, promote anything that I do. But that's OK, because I, I don't I don't promote anything I do, which is why I'm here. My, my parents are dining room and not living Um well, okay, Rub but... Story is a fantastical <laughs> fish out of water tale where where Ed decides to find out where what's the drink? Uh, rum. You've mentioned it a few times. Is it just rum, or was it a certain mixed drink that you were trying no, to find? No, no, no. It, it was. It was uh, the. Con- I blew yeah. it. Yeah. Anyway, he, he, he comes. One he swims across the ocean. I do that to find, and I think he actually did swim across the ocean the really hard way though, because you ended up in L.A. Yeah, it was a real. Yeah, you went voice. around like the the Cape and everything, and yeah, it's yeah. a long swim. But he's a natural strong man. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and then went to L.A. of all places to find the origin of rum, and that's where uh, people are surprised. We didn't we didn't sell it very well. No, I didn't sell it very well. To be well. honest, yeah, we've not I've not sold this this partic- this project particularly well since we created it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's the upshot. The upshot is that the history of rum isn't what you think it is. It's kind of more interesting and uh, takes you to places you wouldn't necessarily expect. And so we started off made making a docu series on the in the in the hope that people would think that this was interesting and fund us to um, to discover more about rum. Um, it, it basically came from a combination of 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 Cara and me wanting to work together because we worked together on a documentary called. Rise of the Suffervests, and by work together, I mean Cara made it with with Scott Keneally. I happened to feature in it a couple of times, but we got on really well. I wanted an opportunity to work together. I happened to write a fictional book called uh, A Rum Run Awry, which was a story of a guild person who uh, goes on a quest to find some rum and gets marooned. And uh, Cara enjoyed this book and gave it to some friends who enjoyed this book. And one of those friends was a producer called Kevin Marcus. And Kevin and Cara decided to make a documentary about rum and use me as the, the focal point. And that's how it happened. And, and that's how I met you. And now here we are. Yeah, and you got to enjoy the uh, magical white couch at my place. Unbelievable. Yeah, spent- <laughs> I've never, I didn't know couches could be like that. I live in a van. You, yeah, you spent eight hours yeah, yeah, on that couch, something like that. I was gone all day and I came back and you hadn't moved. I'm still wow. there. Could have been the jet like, lag, to be fair. The couch. <laughs> uh, after all this time with the rum adventures, do you have a favorite rum? Do I have a favorite rum? You know what? This is This is what people don't expect. I don't know that much about rum, and I've I've deliberately left it that way, because during the filming of the documentary series, it was much more enjoyable to go to these places as a complete ignoramus, and have experiences of meeting bartenders and distillers, and learn genuinely in front of the camera 
how these things worked for the first time rather than me just going along and pretending like I didn't know very much about rum well actually I'm an aficionado with three different favorite rums I just went in as I am which is an idiot who who quite likes it and then allowed these people to actually educate me live on camera so it was a much more authentic documentary than people might might think so I mean there I have a few that I like uh, I, I, a Diplomatico is a is a I quite yeah. like sweet sweet rums um, but my favorites are um are real true agricole based rums they're very sort of earthy and they're they're made from the the sugarcane uh, juice when it's first been pressed rather than when it's been um, made into like molasses and sugarcane mm-hmm. byproducts and things mm-hmm. uh, and it's really like earthy and um you get a lot of it in, in France and therefore I think Martinique um they come that's in. Bottles with like wicker and things like that. Yeah, very yeah. old time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Back uh, when I first started drinking rum, they were about three pounds a bottle or something. Uh, and my parents would bring them back from from the from France and other European countries when they go there. And now, of course, they're all very trendy. They all cost ten million pounds. So yeah, yeah they, they, got, they, they got expensive. So let's let's jump into the guild for real now. Um, what's going on with the guild today? How does one become a guild? men folk person hmm. and uh, uh can can you become a guildsman folk person if you don't live in the the mythical lands of the united kingdom well i don't think you can become a guilds person at all i think it's just something that you are and you realize you are when you kind of get exposed to it you're like oh, yeah that's me or that them they're my people i think that possibly you could see it realize you're not one of those type of people and probably become one of those type of people by living in a similar way. But I definitely think that the guild is something that you, you are part of without realizing that is, it's more of a realization that you are already of the guild. And that's a nice thing to work for some people. I'm sure for other people, it's horrifying to realize that they have anything in common with me. Um, (laughs) But yeah, generally speaking, I think this is something people realize. They'll write to me and be like, hey, I think I'm a guild person. Or a lot of other people say, how do I become in the guild? And I'm like, I don't, either you are or you aren't. And if you're asking, the chances are you're probably not because guilds people tend to be like, I am one of these things. But um, so, yeah, you can be a guilds person anywhere. There's guilds people all over the world. And it's really not up to me to say whether or not they are. Um, I'm not the standard by, by a long way. Do you have to own a halberd? Or a sword. You don't have to. I'd be surprised if you didn't. But, you know, you'll own something that would be like a metaphorical sword or halberd. The metaphorical halberd. Yeah. I'm going to reserve that URL when we're done. All right. So the guild, when uh, when folks express interest in the guild, what's the best way to get people to, to learn more about the guild? Uh, I mean, read the book. Yeah, read the book. That's always a that's a good introduction. I mean, the cheapest way is uh, there's a risk of sounding terrible. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm pretty much ranting about it all the time. Uh, and if if you want like a, a guiding point, like a compass direction for whether or not your things are going in a guildly way, just see if we're marching to the same tune. And if we are, then hey, maybe uh, maybe you're one of us. Um, and it's- that's. That's that's it's exactly what the super nice club is. I feel like people are born into the club, and I. The difference is, when I'm being hopeful, uh, I think that pretty much every human is born into the club. You know, okay. we go sideways somewhere along the way, but we're born into essentially being nice. Right. So you're already a member of the super nice club. If you're listening to this and, and you haven't clicked on our Instagram page, it doesn't mean you're not in the club. It just means you're not one of my favorites. You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you have you to be, be one of my favorites? You have to like the Instagram or Facebook. Do you page. have to actively be engaged in the process of making the world ten percent nicer to be in the Super Mice Club, or do you just have to no. hold that as an ideal? I think it's just something that you're you're willing to, to you're willing to consider it at some point in your life. Okay. Not all of us are ready to be active in making the world a nicer place. There there are times where we're just we don't even know what that means. We don't even know just like where to start. What is the what is the world what does a nicer world look like? I well yeah. Know. There's a whole you know? bunch of prerequisite questions to answer, I guess. Yeah. What is what does a nicer world look like to you, Ed? Um, well, uh, now you're asking. Um, I think a nicer world, if you could put me on the spot, would be uh, one in which people don't feel like they have to hide uh, who they, how they truly feel and how they truly are in order to to meet up to a bunch of expectations over which they had no um, say in creating. I mean, we live, in a, we live in a culture now where you are judged by all manner of things over which you have no control. And the idea that you have to fit into uh, an idea that uh, people have, a pre-existing idea of, that people have of who you are and how you'll be simply based on what your background is and the way that you look or speak or uh, whatever, I think is, is I mean, clearly absurd, right? So uh, if that was the first thing that jumps to mind is a nicer world is one in which people can let go of a lot of those preconceptions and, and, and allow people just to be who they are and get judged um, based on that instead I think I probably just very badly ripped off Martin Luther King haven't I but uh, hey that's great you uh, can, I think you, you put can, it much more eloquently than me you can rip off worse people absolutely mm. uh, I like your vision of a nicer world to achieve that or some part of that do you have a a challenge that you can issue to the listeners challenge. of this podcast something that they can do to make uh, their world or their world a little bit nicer. Okay. It could be a daily act. It can be a, mm. a grand thing. Uh, it's up to you. Yeah. It's your challenge. Well, I had an idea when you first started saying that. And then I thought, given what I just said about my version of a nice world being one in which people are treated for who they are rather than who people assume they're going to be based on a bunch of expectations, I'm going to change what I think. And um, within, within the guild – we have something called the art of unpreparedness. And it is something that I essentially ripped off of Sun Tzu and the art of war in which he declares something along the lines of when you've got a battle formation, if you, if the left flank is prepared for attack, then the right flank will be lacking because you've, you've only got so much energy you can invest in preparing, right? So if you prepare the left, the right becomes lacking. If you prepare the front, the back becomes lacking. And so the only way to truly be prepared is to be equally prepared everywhere. That is to say, not particularly prepared anywhere. And so in the guild, we have this idea called the art of unpreparedness, which is basically going about your life in a state of all-round lack of preparedness for anything. So that involves not really planning anything, not really developing any useful skills before you try and do something, and becomes very much a commitment to just sort of leaping into things and trusting in yourself that you'll come out the other side. Not being Because if you go about something and you, you go on a camping trip and you expect it to go down, here's where we'll camp and here's where we'll get our water from and so on and so forth, and all of a sudden the campsite is closed or the water has shut down or the path to the campsite is being frozen over, and all of a sudden this whole experience becomes mm, sort of harrowing and you've, all your expectations have been shattered and suddenly you're out on a limb. Whereas if you just kind of go out with really no expectations or preparations whatsoever, then everything's a win. So I think if people tried that out on Versailles to try and live in a guildy way which is to just go about all things in a state of all round stubborn unpreparedness uh, <laughs> what it teaches you is 
is your own ability to overcome whatever gets thrown at you, but it also teaches you to stop like pre like presupposing things and expecting things of situations and therefore people. So you don't expect anything of somebody before you meet them because you you're not prepared for them to be one way or another. Um, and in that way, you're sort of equally prepared for everyone to be any way they could possibly be. And you sort of start looking at the world in a state of weird and sort of childlike wonder instead of allowing all your past good and bad experiences to shape what what will come up and i think if people could do that then they would um they'd end up looking at other people and one another in a in a much more open and honest way so i mean that was a, a typically rambling guildly answer but in short answer to your question is i would like for people to once a week just go and do something with absolutely no idea what is involved and don't at all prepare for it just go out and see what happens and the fun thing is that if the thing that you thought was going to happen doesn't happen that's kind of the point so you can't possibly fail it's all success that's great i love the way you summarized it, it, it i i like it now i like it at the end i like what you did with it it's, <laughs> i like uh, it now yeah i like <laughs> it, it now to start yeah, yeah, yeah. with to start hmm. with i thought oh well so if i went into the podcast and i didn't bring my laptop or a microphone and was completely unprepared. Well, I mean, that wouldn't, wouldn't be a podcast, so there are parameters. Yeah, okay, there are parameters. All right, but gotcha. imagine we'd scripted I was, this whole thing and we're like, we're going to talk about this and then I that and then this. Yeah, yeah. I get too literal. Yeah, but jump in. Basically, jump Leap into something in. you don't know anything. Leap. Leap in like like a luchador from the top rope. Mm. Yeah. There's a metaphor I've never used and I'm going to steal immediately. Yeah, that's 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 it'd be a great meme, you know, it could have you on the top rope and you've got the canvas, right? Where you could put oh. all the words, all the lettering, all the font oh, work. Nice. Yeah. Oh, Is it just geez. like a bird's eye view of me like, about about dropping to, to the ground? And then it'll be a, a you know, some guildly words. Yeah, in, some in the canvas, words. some gri- mm-hmm. some guildly words. Excellent. I think that might be the next book title, some guildly words. Some guildly words. Let me ask you this. This yes. is how we end. May I might I might I ask you to ask of me a question, any question. Okay. Any question. Yeah, this is the fun part. Okay. So I have this idea that it's very difficult in the modern world to work out, for example, how to go about being strong. Back in the day, there might be a saber-toothed tiger and you could fight it and you'd prove how strong you are. That doesn't happen very often these days, right? So a lot of the time, I think that when modern, especially men who seem to be suffering with a lack of ways to show their strength these days, struggle to work out what it means to be strong, the easiest way is to look at things that make you feel weak and kind of do the opposite. Mm-hmm. So if you find that, for example, you feel weakest when you are uh, threatened by whatever, somebody else's financial status, like look into that. That's what makes you feel weak. So in order to be stronger, try and move away from that. Try and maybe disengage from placing too much emphasis on material wealth. So my question to you would be, what is it that you think, what, what are the things that you think make you feel weak uh, or afraid or vulnerable? And how do you therefore think you could become stronger and more courageous by moving opposed to those things? Hmm. What makes me feel weak? Uh, well, Amelia Boone, definitely. <laughs> I, uh, she makes everyone feel weak. She's just uh, yeah. a, a machine, a uh, human. It's not just her great podcast with Amelia Boone, by the way, folks. Also with uh, Cara Lancaster, who we've mentioned both in this. Uh, you can go listen to those episodes. Not just her, her physical prowess, but also her vulnerability. She just put out, there's just a new article that she did in Outdoor 
uh, around mm, her non-decision, you know, to have a child have children, at, age, yeah. at age 37. And like, wow, I didn't. I, I, there's just a, a, a vulnerability there that's wonderful mm-hmm. um, that I really appreciate. Um, and her combination of fortitudes, you know, uh, physically, strength. Um, and something I've always appreciated in others, uh, not necessarily like being able to lift a 700-pound baby carriage. I mean, that's awesome. Good on you, man. It's a hell you of know? a big baby. Good on you. But overall health, you know, uh, uh-huh. flexibility. Um, uh, what do you call it? When the, the, the lungs and there's air that comes in and Cardio. then it goes back out. Cardiovascular. Multi-polysyllabic words are really hard, are real hard for me, Ed. They're real hard. Super tough. Uh, cardio. The whole package, the whole fitness package, the whole thing. Okay. Um, so physical. That's story. something that I've always aspired to maybe be in the, the top 50%. Not the bottom fifty percent, right. right? Right. And uh, when I see people who excel at it, I always go, "God, dang! I wish I could be more like that." Right. right? Um, and that it, it doesn't intimidate me. It just reminds me to to work harder, you mm-hmm. know, in in stops and starts, which I do. And I get reminded uh, when I go on your Instagram page, I'm like, "Oh man, that guy's fucking swole." But I don't aspire <laughs> to that kind of like you know, baby carriage strength. Yeah, um, yep. it's a very specific kind of strength. And if I did, I would take a lot of drugs so I could get there in yeah. 20% of the time and achieve 80% of the results. Yeah, you right? would be alone. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. You're a um, human being. <laughs> the other part of that was vulnerability. Yeah. Her vulnerability, that's something that I've got to work on all the time. It's something that I wish I was better at. It helps in relationships of all sorts. It helps mm-hmm. in personal relationships with friends, with lovers. Mm-hmm. I want to believe that it helps in business relationships. I keep seeing evidence to the contrary that, you know, in a lot of business relationships, vulnerability just, you know, people pounce, right? right. Sharks. Right. right? Uh, I want to believe that there's a way uh, as, a, as a business owner, which I have to admit, I finally, that I am when it comes to the Super Nice Club, because we do have a, a business element. Um, mm-hmm. We have investors uh, and we have, you know, multiple platforms that are going to be taking off uh, in the post-COVID world. And I want to believe that some sort of vulnerability in the people that are part of the Super Nice Club, um, not just as the members, of course, but as, as the executive team, you know, can be recognized and can be something that makes people feel more connected to the mission, right? Mm. Um, but I'm also afraid that that can seem self-serving and that it can seem transparent and it can be, mm. look at us, you know, we're, we're vulnerable and transparent and you're, we want you to identify with that so you can buy some hats. Yeah, it's right? kind of disgusting, You know what I mean? It? Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it's, it, it, it actually shuts me down a bit when it comes mm. to the Super Nice Club. It, it pushes me more towards, like in this interview, more towards more just bad dad humor than moments of real introspection with, yeah. with you yeah. know, um, which I know is messed up. So there's some clarity there. There's some work that I'm still trying to, to figure out. Um, God, this is a rambling answer. Uh, beyond that, I am just uh, always impressed by the people out there who are have the attributes that I feel are weaknesses in me, you know? Mm. Um, and I try to get closer to them. I try to oh. um, 
uh, surround myself with them. Um, I don't often feel intimidated by them. I, I, I more go, wow, how do I, how do I learn from that person? Mm-hmm. It's also, I think, just because I'm older, I, I used to feel more intimidated uh, and more jealous, you know, of people that, that yeah. did and had more. I don't, I just, frankly, I just don't anymore. Maybe now and then reflexively a little, you know. Yeah. But I don't, I don't. Well, I don't think you need to feel yeah. intimidated by people, right? Less to, yeah. to, to, to learn from them. It's more like a, a technique for working out how to push yourself in the right direction. Like if you can't work out which direction you want to go in, which seems to be most people that I meet, uh, but just most people in the world in general, we like mm-hmm. that we have so many options for directions these days that it's hard to pick one. Uh, and sometimes it's easier to just look at the direction you really don't want to go in and then run very fast away from it and then hope to catch some momentum, right? So um, in terms of what I asked you about working out how to be strong by working out what makes you weak. Um, yeah, you don't have to be intimidated by people, but if you, you look at people that are doing either what you want to be doing or definitely not doing or doing what you really don't want to be doing, then you can flee the opposite way, right? So you can be equally into, uh, equally motivated by people who repulsed you as people who attract you. Yeah, I think the shorter answer now that I thought on it a minute is the the, the real weakness for me is calmness. It's uh, mental clarity. It's not doing enough work, whether you want to call it mindfulness or meditating or whatever. Mm. You know, um, that's that's the weakness that is most apparent in my day-to-day life. And what's funny about it, because earlier in the show you said, you know, and every 10 minutes you're going to structure my, you know, you're going to structure your life. <laughs> my approach to getting more calmness of late has been, okay, that's it, man. I got to come up with a morning routine. I've yeah. got to put in my 20 minutes to do my meditating at this amount of time. Because otherwise my day is just, oh, you know, now the- it's all over the place, man. I get everything. Mm-hmm. Some of the, I, I get nothing done, but I get nothing done in a new way every day. You know, well, that's um, something that's creative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but do you? What do you think, man? Do you do you think? Do you think this is a question? We, so I hear this. I hear this where people are like, look, if I don't have like the structure and the ten minute intervals and the blah blah blah, I don't get anything yeah. done because I've gotten too busy. Yeah. So I have to structure my life less way. Do you think there's a case of needing to structure? the stuff more is it there's too much of the stuff and maybe if you're like were a bit more essentialist and like okay these are the two important things then the calmness would come much more easily whereas if you're going to try and like desperately seek calm whilst also flooding your nervous system constantly it seems like a losing battle you know you can you can basically automate yourself into a a robot in order to to handle an amount of demands you're placing on yourself that is you know beyond human or you could absolutely no absolutely (laughs) it's 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 too much stuff. I mean, it's funny coming from you, the guy who does 400 things, but um, yeah. it, it is too much I'm stuff. And my, my dear friend Jeremy reminds me a lot. He said, you know, if, when people say, uh, if you ever say, I don't have enough time to do that, well, whatever that thing is just isn't important enough to you. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't have time to, to be with my kids because I've got to work and I've got to go to the gym. I've got to, well that simply means that you prioritized work and going to the gym over your kids. They're not yep. important enough to you. And that might mm-hmm. be, make people recoil, but once you stop and go, wait a minute, ouch, there's some truth <laughs> in that. You know? Mm-hmm. Um yeah. If, you... if it's not important enough to me, so why don't I meditate uh, regularly? Mm-hmm. Because it's not important enough to me. Mm-hmm. That's just the well, answer. 
You've you know? very, uh, you very artfully, as a professional podcast host, man, you very artfully brought things full circle to that mirror we spoke about earlier and looking yourself in the eye and, and being honest about whether or not, like, is it that you don't have enough time or is it that you're putting the gym before your kids? Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of strength in being able to look yourself in the eye and be like, you know what? I don't care about meditating. There, I said it. You know? Yeah. Then you've got a foundation to build from. If you don't care about it, at least stop pretending to care about it. Or the, the flip side is, but but what do you care more about? So mm. am I telling myself that I care more about Instagram? Because I tell you what, I spend more than That's 10 minutes a day on Instagram. Time for Instagram. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> then do I care more about it or am I addicted to it? Or what are these, you know, so yeah. it doesn't mean you don't necessarily care more about it. It's just that you've convinced yourself that you care more about other things that you don't really give a damn about. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah. you think you do. So this goes back to the honesty, the conditioning that we we're talking yeah. about. Who is our true self? You know, mm -hmm. is our true self someone that, that has to do this thing, you know, every day um, because mm -hmm. you feel like it's important, whatever that thing may be, whether it's social media or what else do we waste our time with? Um, for me, it's social media. I think, what is there anything I else? Waste, what do I waste my yeah. time on? That, um, that's about it. Um, yeah, certainly, I, I think I waste a lot of my time just uh, like going down rabbit holes on the internet to, to, that you said earlier about, you know, trying to make yourself feel like an expert when you're definitely not. I think a lot of, I certainly do this where you could, you, you could easily spend four hours researching Viking horns online that we yeah. talked about just to make it feel like you're more educated about something you don't care about at all. But in that right. moment, you can't bear to feel uneducated about a thing because the prevalence of information means that it's now easier than ever to feel educated about things you just aren't. But we're, we're ego-driven humans, right? We're like, well, I mean, I could just not learn about this or I could invest four hours today into arbitrarily educating myself about something I would never think about again. So that in this moment, I feel a little bit more like I can tell someone angrily that I know what I'm talking about. And I definitely do that. I'm sure more people do it than could care to admit to it um ed i'm excited actually to see your travels this i maybe oh. i'm over romanticizing you know you in this in this uh, furniture van toddling down the road from hamlet to hamlet and and getting out your wrestling stage it's just it sounds i i love it right i just thank you a 10 percent nicer world includes Lots of Ed Gamesters Aww. in small hamlets in countries around the world, you know, bellowing, uh, Lucha Libre bellowings, whatever they may be, in Pigeon Spanish. In Pigeon Spanish and it was, yes. To the delight of the onlookers who hold halberds and wear Viking yeah. helmets with or without with horns. horns. With horns. Without. I won't let them in if they don't have horns. They would no, be they're without. I, I, I Googled it while you were using the restroom. It's absolutely, they did not have horns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's that unequivocally does seem that that is the I'll, case. Yes. I will send you links and sources. I, I don't need the links. I've seen the links. I've seen all the links. <laughs> and I, that's why I am staunchly in the horns category because it annoys people. Uh, all over the world for no reason at all they get real angry about it and i feel like i'm doing god's work by by being the guy that takes that that heat skip the whole thing start a new argument that real vikings grew horns nice yeah. or at the very least vikings should have had horns and then at least we can just criticize their long dead culture which people <laughs> seem to love doing <laughs>
They really do. And those <laughs> boats, those boats were shit. You know, oh, they weren't even they weren't even very big, and they you know they couldn't go anywhere. They, to think that they could get across oceans, that's ridiculous. That is absurd. Yeah. That could, yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be the next thing. They would just deny that they even. Oh, it wouldn't have worked. No, if you build yeah, one of those but, boats. They'd never gone over the ocean. Prove me wrong. Ed, I've loved talking to you, man. I'm glad that we know one another. I look forward to your next travels to West Coast US or my Thank travels you. to uh, your neck of the woods uh, mm-hmm. so that we can we can catch up. Uh, thanks what for spending some time. Really do. Really appreciate it. And remember, folks, Money Back Guarantee on Ed's book, which you can find in the show notes. Uh, Money Back Guarantee on any of his performances in the small villages uh, across the United <laughs> Kingdom. And uh, check out Ed's stuff. Check, you, it's, it's, it is a rabbit hole. It's a big rabbit hole, Ed's website, with all of the different things that he does. And I think it's one that you'll find, if not inspiring, at least super funny and enjoyable. Thank you very much. To the opportunity to come on here was was unexpected and um, intimidating because of the quality of guests you've had hitherto. And um, one of the last episodes I, I listened to was the one with Kara, which was just, you know, I, well, I can't have words to describe it. So, um, yeah, the opportunity to join in has been greatly received. Thank you so much for having me. And so there we have it, a super nice conversation with the super nice and illustrious, and industrious, Ed Gamester. I'm a big fan. Big fan of that man. Big fan of the way his mind works, and the way he uh, stays open to adventuring, and in a way that's so true to him. And you know what? If you think that it just seems kind of kind of goofy to be running around the countryside, swinging a sword, and, and wrestling, and uh, playing folk music, and death metal, and all that, ah, man. I don't know. I think pretty much every little kid out there would say, sounds like the perfect life to me, Uh, especially the death metal part. Next week, next week we have Molly Rose from Burners Without Borders. And if you're a burner, yeah, well, you'll know about Burners Without Borders. Not going to tease it. If you're not a burner, look it up. Google Burners Without Borders. Kind of like Doctors Without Borders. Um, Or Palestinians Without Borders, only... Eh, kind of different at the same time. That's next week. Until then, everyone, stay nice. Where you you lost me there a little bit. I, I was just I I <laughs> I just really quickly googled Thor because like, did he have horns on his helmet? Mm-hmm. I don't think he did. He had wings. But did yeah, he that... always have wings? Or did he have horns in like the early Marvel? No, in the early Marvel, actually, I don't know. Um, I think in the early Marvel one, he he still maybe had um, wings. Uh, maybe they knew. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Early Marvel Thor. I think he probably had. He probably had horns. Well, this is what I mean. It's quite a modern. Oh no, he's got wings. He's always had wings. He's got wings. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, they did he's their research. He's bullshit. Their... It's bullshit. Nonsense. Don't you wanna be nice? Don't you wanna be? So what? Big deal.